Hello guys and welcome to my Mavericks podcast or welcome back. I'm Charlie Gladstone. Thank you very much for coming here. I haven't posted a podcast for some time as I've been in France and the truth is that our broadband there has been so bad that it would have taken about a day and a half to upload a podcast so I decided not to do anything. I haven't been wasting my time. I've been doing some low-key work and having some lovely, relaxing time. I also did something which was really interesting, which is write a 40,000-word memoir. Sounds a bit pretentious, but actually it's just for my children. It's been a really interesting process to go through, and it all came spewing out. It's not really a memoir, because there isn't really that much to remember, but it's just... The story of some things that I've learned, some things that I've done, some things that I think, some things that I like. It's been really interesting and really cathartic. And the great thing about doing it just for your children and immediate family and the few friends that are mentioned in it is that you don't worry about the wider audience. So I'd give it a go if I were you. I think it's, it's very interesting and probably much easier than you imagine. The writer's block, if it exists, just kind of unfolds as you start. I've also been watching some amazing things on Netflix, including, I think, particularly The Jinx, which is the best of those murder mysteries. I mean, I've also seen The Staircase and Making a Murder and a few other of those, but this really is in a league of its own. And I watched, for those of you that are interested in football, the seven-part Manchester City propaganda film, which I think was, was, was quite amusing and, and some very charismatic figures and, and some good insights behind the veneer. Um, I enjoyed that. I read A Little Life, which I suspect should have won the Booker Prize. I think it was shortlisted. It's a long book. It's probably sort of 850 pages. And I started it once a couple of years ago and gave up on it. It is absolutely brilliant. It's also brutal. I can't really say that I loved it, although I know that some of my family, a couple of my daughters certainly, and Caroline loved it. But I, I found it almost too brutal and too painful. But it's a wonderful, long, rich fable. I also reread Patti Smith's Just Kids a couple of days after seeing Patti Smith perform, and I found that incredibly moving. Anyway, enough of me rumbling or rambling on. This is a conversation with a young maverick. It's the second in my occasional series of young mavericks, and it's with a guy called Charlie Williams who manages various bands. There's a nice story here because I actually signed a band to EMI and Chrysalis in the late 1980s, a band that I was managing, and they were signed by the head of A&R at that time, who was a guy called John Williams, who was a lovely man and hadn't seen for about 25 years, although he's often reasonably close in my thoughts. But he tapped me on the shoulder in the street when I was on the phone in London a couple of months ago, and it was very nice to see him, and we, we got chatting about his son, and it turns out that his son is interesting in that he's managing bands and doing what I was doing at that age, so interesting to me at least. So I thought that I'd do a series, put together a few young managers that I know or know of into one podcast. But actually, my conversation with Charlie was so interesting and engaging and amusing that I decided to present it here as one podcast. And I hope you enjoy it. So just sort of starting, starting this out, um, how, how old are you? I'm 20, 26 now. And how long have you been managing for? About two and a half years. Right. So... I started in a label services company when I was 23. I was working on quite a few different campaigns on artists that were really, really great in their own field, but just not my kind of music. So I was finding myself out every night at different shows and 
seeing all these amazing bands and having no way to work with them. So I started my own cassette label because running a record label, you need a lot of money to start it, and I had no money. Whereas a cassette release, you can spend 100 quid and have 50 copies, and it just it's a nice way to start getting involved. I put out two bands to begin with, one called Dead Pretties and one called Sorry. I started managing them both, and when they both got deals and publishing deals, it kind of made sense just to start doing management full-time. It's interesting. I mean, you, you obviously grew up in a music family because your dad has been um, an A&R man and a producer for, what, I mean, I suppose 40 years or something. Yeah, yeah. He's, been, he's, he's worn many hats. He's been artist, producer, A&R man, label head. <laughs> and and um, I should probably just sort of um, repeat here what we were talking about, that it's quite weird that your dad signed the band that... I managed yeah. when he was head of A&R at Chrysalis, which was part of EMI at that stage. And then, you know, here we are now with you managing <laughs> bands. So it feels like a really good place to start. But I'm interested in that thing about loving music and, and not necessarily liking parts of the industry. Yeah. I mean, because I think my, my, I grew up as a massive music fan. And when I left university, there was, you know, if I had to choose what I wanted to go into, it was music. So I went into it. But I didn't find a whole load of people in there who were passionate music fans. I mean, do you think that's... Did I just miss out, or...? I suppose... I mean, it's really difficult at some points to remember that absolute love of music when you're spending 10 days, 10 hours a day working on a laptop and just doing, like, tour budgets and forgetting that there's a whole creative world and the artists you're working for exist in that. I also think maybe... At the moment, there's definitely more people who are madly obsessed because the money just isn't there anymore. It's, right, okay. I suppose when Kingmaker, the band you managed, were going, even if a small deal, it'd still be quite substantially bigger than... Oh, there was a lot of money yeah. being thrown at it, particularly in America with Kingmaker. But, but I think, you know, what's interesting is that it's... You know, is, is, make, is that maybe that what you're saying with the cassette label is that that sort of DIY creativity, which, you know... is Punk was famous for, has yeah. actually maybe come back. Is that what you think? Yeah, definitely. All, all the bands I think who are brilliant at the moment are all running off complete DIY ethics. Even if they are signed to bigger labels, they still completely maintain that. And it's our job as managers to make sure they can continue to do that and not have it diluted by anyone. So what? So it strikes me that when I was a manager, yeah, I, there, I think there are two aspects to management, and, and we were really good at one and not so good at the other. So we were really good at the creativity. In other words, getting the band to mean something to fans. Yeah. So they were good at the music and I think we were good at reaching the fans. What I don't think we were so good at was the business management. Uh, what, what, what's your job? I mean, are you, do you have a partner in your business? So I, I work for a management company called Golden Arm. I work for two managers called Milo Ross and Louise Latimer. I do day to day for all of their bands and then I have my own roster of two different artists as well. And then I run a record label. So there's non-stop kind of, I mean, I, I'm not the world's greatest mathematician in any way. Um, I have a very good accountant who really helps out with that kind of thing. But that's but, a really important, I mean, a really important part of it. I mean, I think when people are, you know, listening to someone like you talk, you know, you're in your 20s doing a really cool job, you know, cool young guy, they think that you're probably just living the rock and roll lifestyle. But actually, <laughs> presumably at the root of it is really good business management. Is that right or not? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have to have business savvy because it is, unfortunately, the music business and the people we work, we act as the go-between between the artist, the labels, the publishers, their lawyer, everything. And so we have to understand completely 
every single aspect of the industry and how that relates back to them. And at the end of the day, we're there to get artists paid as well. Yes. So we have to understand all their different revenue streams, where they should be getting money from it, and where the money should be distributed, and how that money should be spread out to make sure they can afford to live for a year, two years, until they're making their I record. think that's a critical thing, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, and that's the hardest bit. Yeah, so you get, you get an advance of... I mean, what would you get you know, from a, a big independent label for a, you know, a fairly sought-after band now? What would be the sort of advance that you might get? I mean, it can go from, like, 50 to 150,000, maybe more, but I think it's almost dangerous to take a massive deal because then you're, when, you, when they give you that advance, that's not just money that you get, that's all recuperable. Yes, of course. So, but then, but then I, I, and that, of course, is the mistake is that people make, is that you might, you might never see that money back. But I suppose my point is that if you've then got to spend a year touring yeah. and making an album before that money comes back, you presumably got to get, if there's four people in the band, yeah. I mean, 50 grand isn't going to get you very far. No, not so. And also, that's if you're lucky and the album does come out a year after you sign. And in a lot of cases, it takes two or three. Especially if you've got a lot riding on it, yes. it can really take a long time and then suddenly that money really doesn't go far at all and you find that the band are running out of money very quickly. So, big, so, your, so your job, so you go, you go to a show and you see this really, you know, really interesting band, yeah. they, they kind of get you in your, you know, in your gut. You, what, what then happens? How do you, what do you do? You go up to them afterwards and say, guys, I want to manage you. Yeah, I mean, it's... There's probably a little bit more kind of sussing them out than that. I mean, the thing, the thing for me is that the hardest bit is that everyone has to have the same ambition. For every single artist I work with, I want them to become the biggest artist in the world. And if they don't agree with that, that makes life really, really hard because you always want the greatest success for everyone you work with. And, you know, so sometimes people are quite happy just to be a kind of cult band. Yes. Which isn't really for me. But you can be a big, I mean, you, you can be a big cult band. I mean, you can, Radiohead you can or, be, yeah. you know, yeah. possibly The War on but Drugs then, or something. I think also the most important thing for me is, well, there's, there's several things that I kind of, it's, it's not a checklist, but the most important thing is the band have a really clear idea of what they are and what they're doing, what their aesthetic is. Because that's actually, that's going to be the outward portrayal and that's really how, I mean, it sounds crass to say, but that's how they're going to be sold. Well, that's what, that's what rock and roll's about, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. So as long as they have a clear idea, if they don't, it's often manager's job to help them find that because the manager essentially is there before everyone else. Yes. So normally there's a, almost an incubation period where you just got to make sure that everything is right. You want to make sure they're going to be the best live band possible when you finally let them go out and do live shows. You want to make sure they're going to beat every single other band. And then, and, and, so, and then, so you, you do, so you, you know, let's say the band are, you know, not, clearly not fully formed because all interesting bands evolve, but they yeah. look great, they can play well live. Will you go for a publishing deal before a record deal normally? Um, I mean, typically it's the other way around, but I, it, the last, the last, I suppose the second last publishing deal I did was before a record deal, but that was actually more because uh, the band were completely skinned and we did get offered an amount of money that would have let them continue to incubate and write all the music before they could go and get their record deal, which is... So just explain what... It, so ex, I used to be a music publisher, but explain to people what the publisher... what the publisher does as opposed to the record label. So the publisher owns the songs. So the second an artist writes a... If, if, if you're signed to a publishing company, the second you write a song and you let them know about it, they own it for the set amount of time you sign the deal for. And then they're going to exploit those songs, uh, which is not the same as exploiting in the way of the... No, legally, positive exploitation. Yeah, yeah, it's positive yeah. exploitation. 
they'll find you things like synchronizations, which is when you get your music put in a TV show or a film, which then gets you a fee for the artist every time the record every time played. the artist comes out. Yeah, yeah, and 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 so you, but you would norm you would normally go for a record deal first. Yeah, I suppose you can raise the value of the artist by signing a record deal first. The publisher then knows that there's going to be a set amount of money put into marketing the band. So therefore, the sinks will be worth more. Yeah. So yes. it's, it's in everyone's interest, except for the publishers, to... <laughs> to get in there first. Actually, funny yeah. enough, I mean, my, my, my kind of thing with, with bands was actually trying to sign them before record labels and that yeah. publisher. But, but maybe that's changed, or maybe it just was unusual. I don't really know. No, I mean, I think everyone has different ways of doing it. Yeah. It's, it's case by case for every single artist as well. And, and, then, and then, so then you, you find a band, you, you, you maybe... Do you ever put out a record on, or a cassette on your own label? Yeah, just yeah. Just to sort of try and get the, the you know, people to talking about them and yeah I've, I've put out uh of the bands i've managed i've put out one of them on my own label a band called dead pretties who then signed to fiction um but i also run the record label to release music that i absolutely love but won't have the time to get involved in on a more serious management level but i can really try and help out by offering a little bit of finance to do a record and get some vinyl printed and maybe hire a press person yeah that i mean actually uh Philip Paul, who I was talking to you about before we started recording, yeah. he was sort of legendary PR guy. He and I used to do this thing of putting out records. And, and in those days, it was very not seen as credible to be on a major label. So you kind of needed an independent yeah. record up front. We did, I mean, we worked together on um, a number of things, but he did the Manic Street Preachers in that way, just put out a record. And, yeah. But now the majors are not seen as the kind of enemy. They were in those days, I think. I suppose, the st I, I think still for bands, it's important to, to maintain your independence as long as possible. That's why... But for image purposes? Or no, I mean, for many different purposes. You can have that time to write great songs, have that time to really hone your craft. And Because when you sign to, if you did sign to a major label, they are going to want to press the button when the time is right, and then you're really just sprinting, and you've got to keep up all the time. Yes. And I think also, from a fan perspective, and I say this completely having agreed with this when I was a kid and a teenager and looking at bands, you want them to be on your level. You don't want them to feel like they're just in these untouchable heights of Sony and Universal. You want them to be on a little local record label. So Definitely. I mean, I, can, I completely agree. And you I can mean, go out there and you can meet them and you can talk to them. They don't seem like they're complete rock stars that are just completely out of your league. Yes, and then, and then, you, and then actually you remain loyal to them. Ah, uh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And... You, and Certainly, when bands released on independence, when they've gained that following, you find that nobody's going to say they've sold out when they go to a bigger label. Everyone's just more happy for them because yes. everyone yeah. knows they can probably finally get paid. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and so tell me about um, so tell me about the, um, the the band that you put out and then, then um, signed to Fiction. I mean, what happened there? So it was a great band called Dead Pretties, still one of my favourite bands ever. Uh, I'm still good friends with them, and they're still all making music in different guises. So we uh, they. They, I was probably, I was managing for about a year, and they were really going for about a year, two years. We signed to one of Chapel for publishing, which kept them going, and then we signed a deal to Fiction, released two singles, and they had a really, really amazing reception. We got playlist on Radio X, we got a Radio One session, we got Tip for 2018 by DIY magazine. Um, but there's also a whole different side to artists being in the music industry, which is relentless touring, and it, and relentless pressure. And sometimes that's really not helpful for creativity. And the frontman, Jacob, who's a fantastic writer and a fantastic musician, found that the music he was doing wasn't actually to his taste anymore at all. Right, uh, okay. He was having a really, really hard time touring. And it just completely got down to the band not being fun anymore for anyone. 
And so, so they just so they just imploded or yeah, split up or whatever. They they split up on their they split up at their final London headline show, which was sold out. God, I, um, I mean, I do I do think it's interesting this because when people ask you know when people ask me what I would not want my children to be, I actually would not want them to be in a successful band, <laughs> and I don't think that I I don't think that the general observers understand this and it, it, it's always sort of this thing about oh, don't you complain about being on the road or in the hotel room because you're making you know huge living out of it but it is really hard isn't it it's brutal yeah and and then i think also that other pressure is certainly from that i could see is that pressure of kind of late nights you know and, and drinking and drugs and all that stuff i mean very hard to avoid for a bunch of young kids. Yeah, and I'm sure I'm sure you've also seen all that. It's very hard. I've to seen avoid it. For, it happened for, with my band for I mean, everybody. Yeah, it went it went it went really pear shaped. But I I wish in retrospect that I'd been able to control that more. I mean, is that something that you you know and your your company are conscious of? Is that I know you're roughly the same age as, as the bands you're working with, but you know you've got to make sure that they that they don't go off. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, half of management is completely pastoral. You you have you have a relationship with your artist that's a completely different relationship to being a friend or anything like that. It's almost, you know, you feel like you really have to look after them, and if you don't, then and does that mean that you kind of can't be there drinking with them after a big headline show? Or I mean, obviously, occasionally you can. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, it's 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 difficult because. You really feel complete. I mean, I, I don't know how other managers feel, but I feel completely responsible if something, if someone's having a bad time in the band, it really affects me, and I want to make sure that they're just having the best time they can, and making the best music they can. If someone is in real trouble, I, I will go and say we have to put the brakes on for a second, and whether that's maybe this band needs to stop, and everyone needs to make sure they're okay, because mental health in the music industry is a really difficult topic. It's, it's not talked about at all, is it? I mean, it's, it's starting to be talked about a lot more, but not as much as it should be. I think it'd be, it'd be, be difficult to find anybody working in the music industry, especially as an artist who doesn't suffer with some form of anxiety or anything like that. But that, that seems to me, because whatever level you're on, whether you're on you know, the biggest um, uh, major label in the world or yeah. a small independent label, you're still being pushed as product relentlessly. I mean, and if you go to whether you go to Hull or Las Vegas, you've still got to do kind of, you know, eight interviews and, you know, four trips to record stores and then probably an acoustic show and then a, yeah. and then a gig. I mean, you know, that that's hard, isn't it? I mean, I assume. Yeah, especially when every single question that you normally get asked if you're an artist is roughly the same. Yes. So you find yourself giving loads and loads of different interviews where they're just asking the exact same things over and over again. It can get very weary. Um, I suppose it's difficult. It must be very annoying for, I mean... I suppose if you're listening to this and you're an aspiring artist and you're thinking, oh God, why is everyone complaining about having to do interviews? It must be very frustrating to hear that, but it does really wear people down and it's understandable. There's no real set working hours. So it's just whenever. But then I suppose, you know, the, 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 the question I've got is, you know, yeah. you're obviously a, a, you know, a, a wise head on a reasonably young body. <laughs> I don't know about that. But, but you've got to, you know, you, you've got to kind of, tread a very difficult line, I imagine, because clearly you want them to be successful, and to be successful they've got to meet and greet and yeah. do interviews and, and play on the radio and then do a show, but, but then on the other hand you've also got to give them sort of rest and comfort. Yeah, and, and often if, if the artist says, I'm finding this a bit too much, we will say to the press officer, or whoever it is that's working on it, we need to calm down the interviews for a second, they need a break, 
Yeah, you you will, and you're very conscious of that, are yeah, you? Yeah, I've had to do that in the past. Yeah, I think it's intriguing for me with you because you're particularly working with the kind of, um, uh, I mean, we'll talk about some of the bands you're working with at the moment, but you're working with quite a kind of alternative kind of, um, you know, kind of traditional. I mean, just the music I love, but kind of you know rock and roll. Yeah, bands, yeah. aren't you? It, and yeah, I work. You know, so they presume you come out of the blocks. They're like, "Fuck yeah, you know, I'm in a band <laughs> and we're signed and let, we're going to party." I mean. Yeah, and, and that you can't blame anyone for doing that, especially when they're all fairly young and that's the dream, really. And then, yeah, I mean, it's... I work also with an electronic musician called Glows who I've just started working with, which is a completely different world. And I love that world, and it's really exciting to be in that world, but it's slightly different. I think for bands, there is always still going to be the, like, rock and roll lifestyle in a certain way. Have you seen that series on Netflix called After the Raves? I haven't. It's good. It, 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 it's kind of fascinating. It, it's, it's hosted by a guy called Tommy Sunshine. I have no idea who he is, but... Um, well, I mean, I know who he is because I've watched the series, but it, it, it follows Rave, essentially, in, in non-chronological order, kind of from Las Vegas. And, but then he spends a couple of episodes in Holland where two huge EDM DJs yeah. have basically, both young guys, have had kind of breakdowns and, you know, gone back to their homes. And... That, I mean, that does seem like, you know, quite a frightening word. It's almost more than rock and roll, because you can become huge, huge very quickly yeah. in that, can't yeah. you? Yeah, so. I mean, it's, it's like I said before, it's very difficult for anyone working as an artist when it, you, you do have a, an unstable life in a lot of ways. Yeah. To not fall into a lot of anxiety about a lot of different things. You have a huge amount of pressures coming from a lot of different angles. And then you have, if you have success, you also have the, the pressures of fame, and the pressures of playing to huge amounts of people every night, that can get incredibly tiring, which then affects your emotional state. So, yes, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a crazy world. It's really interesting, because, I mean, you know, it is rock and roll, but yeah. then the thing, and that, that's the joy of it for, for, for us in the audience and probably in the band, but then as a manager, I guess, you know, your duty or your job is to make that successful and to do that generally unless you're Keith Richards or, you know, Sean Ryder or whatever, it, it, you can't necessarily kind of have both sides of the coin. Yeah, and it's, I think for me the most important thing is remembering why everyone's doing it in the first place. If you forget about the whole business side of things, which can completely consume you, if you, I mean, I, I personally, on like a Friday night, I'll just sit in my flat with a bottle of wine and listen to great records. Yes. And that's, I need to do that every week, or else you do forget that you absolutely love music and everybody's I forgot, in the same I reason. forgot that completely. I mean, that, that was one of the things I didn't like about it. And... Um, and, and, and it took me about two years after I'd left the industry to start to really enjoy music because I yeah. found my relationship was like was with a record or an artist was saying, how the hell did they manage to get to number three? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, rather than kind of going, oh, it's a great record. Yeah, and I've had the exact same thing when you listen to a great single and you're thinking, God, I wonder who did the press on this. They got loads of stuff there. Who's doing the radio? Why have they got so many plays? And then it's difficult to just remember that music is, is art and music is out there for you to listen to and interpret the way you want to. We probably interpret it now in a much more business way than yes. we used to. I mean, and it's very difficult to let yourself back, get back into just loving it, which is why I just make sure that every week I just get drunk and listen to a great record. I don't know if you, um, <laughs> if you listen to my um, podcast with Nick Clegg, because yep. he had that fascinating thing, he said, when he left government, I think when he lost his seat, much to his surprise, suddenly music that he'd loved before, suddenly he said he started consuming it like a kind of, I think he said his analogy was like a pot plant, sort of <laughs> soaking up water that hadn't been watered. Yeah. And, and I, you know, that's what happened to me, but it took me two years. But so, 
just tell me kind of a little bit about what your you know your day would involve. So you're you're now you know essentially working with or managing directly kind of what half a dozen bands. So I work on I work day to day management, which is basically just all the calendars, a lot of press requests, touring budgets, a bit of everything for four different bands. So there's the Big Moon, who were Mercury nominated last year, uh, HMLTD, who are about to release an album, where they're just recording an album at the moment, Goat Girl, whose album came out a few weeks ago. And that's doing really well. It's going really well, and it's a great album. And, and you got, you got that into well. the top 40. Yeah, went to number 23. Amazing. So happy days. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then I also, I managed two really new bands who haven't released anything yet, and they're in that period where it's getting everything right before you get step into the public eye. Right. There's no, you know, you don't get a, a second chance at a first, first impression, so you've got to make sure that everything is great before you move forward. So that's at the moment what I'm doing with them. So those two bands, that's, that's really interesting. So you've got those two bands, you, yeah. you believe in them, you know, you're getting things totally. shaped. Yeah. Who, who do you talk to to help you with you know, do you have a sort of stable of advisors, like a, a great accountant or...? Yeah, I work with a fantastic lawyer called Paul Spraggan, who I love to bits and has helped me out in a lot of different ways. He's the lawyer on my record label called Big Score, which he's just been invaluable on. And he's also, he also works with a lot of great artists and he works with a lot of great people. He's always happy to put in a little word every now and then to whoever he thinks would be interesting. But for me at the moment, there's a lot of time spent in rehearsal rooms, a lot of time spent working on image and aesthetic. Rehearsal rooms is the biggest thing actually at the moment. Is it? Yeah. So I, yes. spent, I, was in, I was in a rehearsal room for six hours yesterday with a new band who I'm working with. Just listening to them play and giving feedback. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, they, they need to get a set that's going to be absolutely perfect. And to do that, they need to practice it. There's a whole thing about you need to put in 10,000 hours to get your craft to the level you need to be at. And I don't feel comfortable putting out any artist into a room where especially there's going to be a lot of a&Rs and press people who are going to judge them really quickly unless they're going to be fantastic because it's not fair for them to have to deal with that pressure unless they know they're brilliant. And presumably the, the record companies disappear instantly if they're not massively interested yeah. in something. Yeah, I've, I've definitely watched an A&R leave after half a song in a band I was managing, which is the most disheartening thing at the time, but then you've got to think that's just one person who doesn't like it. There's bound to be people that don't like everything. But the A&R people, in my experience, always hunted in packs anyway. Do, yeah. do, do they still do that? Yeah, they're still the back of the room. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, if one of them loves... I mean, it's a bit like critics, it seems to me. I mean, they all obviously act off press releases, whether it's movies or film or TV, yeah. but, but they also, they must all talk because they're all the same thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it can't, it can't, you know, it, and I think a and is the same, isn't it? Yeah, totally. And if one person's really excited about a new artist, everyone else is going to think like, oh God, what if I miss that? Yeah. What if they get it and I miss out on that? And, and we're, I'm sure everyone thinks in the same way. If someone's really excited about one thing, everyone's going to feel that excitement and and does a young artist have to be, do you think, really in London now to, to really get attention of the, the industry? I mean, you have to come to London. It's almost, in some ways, a blessing not to be in London because there's so many great artists coming out at the moment, but they all exist in a very similar world. It's very difficult, I think, to get any perspective on how you're actually doing as a band when so many other bands around you are at a similar stage or higher. You start to compare yourself a lot more. And I've had this in the past with another band I was managing where... They were doing really well if you look at them independently but in comparison to a few of their friends they weren't because they hadn't been going the same amount of time they hadn't put out a record and then suddenly that all feeds back into complete nerves and anxiety about yes. what if we're not going to make it and they are 
it's almost better if you're, you know, coming out of somewhere in the middle of nowhere and you can just actually work on it yourself. And you just get it right. Yeah. Do you know what the ratio of bands that sign to big labels, let's not call them majors or independents, yeah. that actually make their advance back is? Oh, I'm sure it's a tiny amount. I'm I think sure it it's... used to be sort of one in 20-something. I'm or... sure, yeah. Yeah, yes. So and and so the the label, but but that doesn't discourage the labels because there's always a cold play out there, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I think it's really important that record labels give artists the time to write and the time to make a few albums, because you know if you look at some of the greatest artists ever, they don't really hit their stride until their album three, three or four, and it's important now. We we are in a in a world where all of our attention spans are very very small, that. There's faith put in the artists and faith put in the writers to make sure that they can be able to actually get there. If you work, if you offer a massive deal for a great band and then suddenly don't make the record work and make the money back, and then you drop them, what was the point? Yes, absolutely. Do you, do you, I mean, do you, presumably you chat to your dad and his friends. I mean, what 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 do you feel is the kind of the, the I mean, and, and we all read about it as as kind of outsiders a lot. What do you think has been the the the, the or what have been the really significant changes in the industry in say the last twenty years? I mean, I've only been working this through for three years, but already the I mean, for me it feels like there's a lot more democratization of music. If you're an artist, you can actually. You can do it without a record label. You can do it without, you know, all the kind of structures you need in the first place. You can distribute your own records through services like AWOL, which are free to use for you. That's how you get it on Spotify, or Apple Music, or any other streaming services. You can become a lot more savvy in how the business works, and you can definitely do things by yourself. So, I think that's really, really exciting. I think it's really, really good for music. But it also means that the volume of music coming out has increased massively. The amount of songs being uploaded to Spotify alone every day is just... Do you know how many it is? Gigantic. Like, yeah. I think it's, it's like, something crazy, like 20,000. Right, OK. God. So when, when that's the case, it's, it becomes even harder to actually work that kind of filter of quality. And I found recently that people are definitely more interested in songs than artists. Yeah, okay, that, yes, yeah, so, so that actually presents the, a real problem. Yeah, well, not a problem, really, but it just forces everyone, well, not forces, but it, it encourages everybody to step it up. No, but in terms of longevity, oh, maybe it does, but in terms of longevity, I mean, you know, presumably the, the loyalty used to be to the artist, and if it's yeah. now to the song, you have... I mean, I think in the world of bands, the, the loyalty to artists is always going to be there, but I think in the world of pop and electronic music and world outside of bands it's definitely more about the songs. I, mean, I guess as pop has really always been, but now to an even bigger extent because you have your editorial playlists like New Music Friday on Spotify where it's just, you find that if you have an artist that has a song on there, suddenly they'll have 20,000 plays, but the next week there's a new playlist and suddenly yes. the, the plays stop. Yeah, and yes. It's about finding, you know, it, it, just, it, it just means that people will listen to a song, but then they won't really endeavor to go more into it unless they're a giant fan. Yeah, so Goat Girl, Charlie's managing this band who are obviously going places and I think they're great. Their biggest track on Spotify is Crackadrool, which has had well over half a million listens. And um, here's a little burst of that for you. I think it's great. Across the wall, built a 
around like crack a drill. Grab your gun and turn his hand. You're walking across the promised land. Settle down and drink your joke. Try the scene before it's in So the, 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 you, you talk about this ability to create things essentially by yourself, which is clearly completely right, and, and to operate out with the industry. However, I don't think there's ever been a successful artist who hasn't had a manager, has there? I mean, you know, the Smiths famously tried to self-manage. Yeah. One, you know, in my opinion, one of the greatest bands ever. Um, and that was, and I think it was that attempt to self-manage that destroyed them after yeah, only I mean, a few years. But there haven't really been any, or I say band, artists. I mean, everyone does need a manager. Management, when you get to a certain level, is an absolute full-time job. So if you're the artist, you're writing, you're playing, you're recording, you're doing all your other commitments and trying to manage it, you're just going to find there aren't enough hours in the day. Yeah. So that's... But if I'm a young, if I'm a young or an old guy and I'm making, you know, amazing music and, and, and someone comes to me and says, I want to be your manager. Yeah. Uh, how, how do I know, you know, what, what, what criteria? I mean, so if you're pitching, as it were, either through your company or individually, what, what are you going to say to me that, that, that makes me think this guy is the guy to guide my career? I think before we even had that conversation, I would definitely have worked up a plan in my head of where I think you as an artist should be and where you should be going and how we should achieve that. So I think I'll just say that. And if they disagree with it, that's fine. If they agree with it, then maybe we could work together. Um, I think the biggest thing for me in management is absolute trust. If there's no trust there, then the relationship is impossible. So with Goat Girl, who are you know, very much touted as one of the new big things, how did that relationship well, so I'm, I'm their day-to-day -day manager. So I came into the company when they'd already been working with the manager they work with at the moment. I assist them on everything. Um, I mean, for them, it's been, it's been a fairly long journey. It's been maybe two and a half, three years since the manager I work with stepped into a, a room with them and said, you guys are fantastic. Right, okay. Okay, but you, but you, but you. So you now have to. What you've got to do is you've got to get in there, yep. and you've then got to persuade them that you're the right guy. But you, you're treading this line between kind of being their mate and being their, you know, their business yeah, guide and, and as well. Sometimes there's a lot of tough love, and <laughs> is, is, there is, is there? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's, there has to be at some point. It's a real heavy conversation. If if the work isn't being put in, if everyone's coasting around, if there's a lot too much. You know, if there's a lot, a lot of drugs and drinking going around when really there should be recording, you've got to really just say, do you want to do this or not? Yes. And that can be a really difficult conversation. And that's why, for me, it's the most important that the artist trusts me and I trust the artist completely. Because otherwise, if they don't trust me, they could just say, no, nah, why, why are we listening to him? Yes. But if they do, they will understand I'm only saying it because I know that it's going to help them. You, you probably don't consider yourself to be young, but you are young. And I was actually I, thinking about it, exactly your age when I was managing. Do you think that the, do you find the industry has 
of sort of built-in respect for young people? I mean, because I guess young people have always actually driven the creative side of the industry. Or have you as a young man, you know, you were 23 when you started doing this, did you find that people were looking down their noses at you because you were a kid? I mean, I've had a really, really privileged time in the music industry because I'm, I'm a guy who lived in London. My parents live in London. I don't have to come from anywhere else to... I can live with my parents if stuff goes really, really badly. That's a huge advantage to a lot of other people who are coming from outside of London and having to really struggle with a manager's job, a manager's salary at the beginning. Yes. Um, you take yeah. 20%, yeah. do you, of, yeah. of everything? 20% of everything. I mean, to a degree. If, if, it's, if it's £150, there's no way. No, I'm okay. I'm interested on that. But, um, yeah. but, you know, T-shirt sales, merch sales, gigs. Yeah, of, yeah. of the band's profit. Yeah, yeah, of the band's profit, of course. Yeah. So um, when I was 23, I did walk into a, a substantial record label to talk about a deal they'd offered a band I was managing, which was a, a big deal. Well, not a big deal in terms of the finance, but a big deal to me and the band that a massive label had actually stumped up a lot of interest and enough to actually want to sign them. And I was asked by the then head, are you just their mate? How, how, did you go to school with them? Like, are you really a manager? Yes. <laughs> and what, so what was your response? I was a bit taken aback, really. I just, I feel like I actually had to put my foot down and say, like, I've taken this band to you and you need to understand that we're all in it together. You need to trust, the same thing, labels need to trust managers. Yes. So, and, but I mean, I suppose my question is, do you think, so age actually was an obstacle to an extent, where you imagine it shouldn't be in the music industry? Mm, yeah, I mean, I don't think it's as, I don't think I've really ever had such a problem with being a young manager that any other young manager hasn't had. And I think a lot of the times also, as young managers, we're, we're never gonna be as experienced as much older managers who have had a massive track record. And we will all get there, but we're not gonna be able to say like, oh, I remember when X headlined the O2. We just haven't had that experience. So it's, it's in a way fair to, to make that assumption about young managers, but I think what drives all of us is just a massive, massive desire to work with the greatest artists and get them to the biggest level they can possibly achieve. And, and do you, um, do you, do you, does your company manage for the whole of the world or do you have, do you have satellite offices in America? Or? No, for the whole of the world, yeah. So, so, you don't, so if you sign Goat Girl to an American label, will you then do a deal with a manager out there or not? No, I mean, we haven't, we're not really at that level yet with any of the bands we But, but that is what happens, isn't it, relatively I mean, it often? Can, I mean, it can That's do, what we I think, did. I think... Uh, Almost fine American managers will try and take everything. So I think American managers are a completely different breed to English managers, I'm sure you know. Tell me, go on. It's, it's, there's a lot. It's, it's a very... I mean, Americans have a slightly different way of working. They're completely business-oriented, and it's, it's very, very tough. I suppose maybe we're a little bit softer in a lot of ways. We're, we've got that kind of weird British mentality. We're a bit more polite, a bit more... A bit more people pleasing, which I'm sure we shouldn't be, but it's just inherent in a lot of us. That's good. I, yeah. I mean, you know, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. So yeah, I, I definitely found that. I mean, I, and I think the American music business. My impression of it, having worked for Warner's and then signed a band to EMI North America, is that it was just staggeringly unpleasant and cutthroat. I yeah. mean, they were going to do what I wanted them to do, and that was great. I was happy with that, but I mean, really brutal. Yeah. I didn't. Li- I mean, I did not like. A lot of those people, I'm sure, didn't like me either. So it's fine, <laughs> but you know what I mean. And so, um, j- just to sort of wind up, is you're obviously um, focusing, although you're working with electronics 
a bit, electronic artists, you're focusing on the area of music that I've always loved, which is the the guitar yeah. band. Um, and yet people are always telling us that guitar music is, is dead. I mean, it's not, but, but you know, in my opinion. But, but is the industry open to guitar music at the moment, or is it mainly um, R&B or electronic? Or I mean, that's the music that's working now. There's no reason to say in a year's time it won't completely change, as it always does. I mean, you see trends throughout music since recording music started. It's always cyclical. And you'll always find that there's going to be a band that will come back and they will knock down that door and make it a few years of bands again. Because then all the labels want to start pushing their acts that are in a similar... Yeah, I mean, people's tastes change as well. And I think, yeah, at the moment, you're completely right. Hip-hop and R&B especially, I mean, I think grime is amazing. And obviously... Grime seems to me just to be punk rock. Yeah, it's slightly totally different, totally slightly totally different yeah, kind yeah. of you know uh, makeup, but the same thing. Yeah, and I think a lot of bands can learn a lot from grime as well. Um, in what in what way? I suppose there's a a level of output that's just unreal. It's just release after release after release. There's a lot of collaboration, which I think is really really exciting. I'm not sure how that will work in a world in a world of bands, but I'd love to see it tried. I think collaboration is the most important thing in music at the moment. Well, Coldplay have played it to a T, haven't they? I mean, I, I can't think, but I think they've got sort of Beyonce on one track and yeah. one track. I think Avicii did a track for them. and So, you know, they've obviously sussed that one and that's helped them to become Yeah, Because yeah, they I mean, were essentially, you know, a guitar band. And they've originally. stayed relevant because of that. Yes, very um, much so. Yeah. And they've managed to... I mean, obviously Coldplay are a massive band, whether you like them or not. But I, I think it's academic whether you like them or not. I mean, clearly yeah. what they do, they do extremely well. And I, I've, I've been interested in... I, I'm not sure I've sort of consciously understood what tracks on what album with theirs and what is on another album, but from what I can work out, they've allowed their music to mutate into a kind of, you know, what the Americans call EDM. Yeah, thing. Totally. but I mean, if you look at... I mean, the, most, the best example of that is David Bowie. Every record he was doing was... He's a chameleon. Yes, but he was doing it to create the trend, not to yeah, in a, in not a to way, piggyback totally, yeah. on the trend. No, no, but but he also would change the style of music he was doing on every other record. He completely, I mean, heroes to a lot like heroes versus Ziggy Stardust is just impossibly different. Yes. So yes, I, yeah, no, absolutely, no. I think I think that's really interesting. So what would you, you know, with, with Goat Girl, would you? I mean, are you? Is is it radio that you really need, or is it is it? I mean, is it live shows? What where is your kind? You know, where does your momentum to get into the top thirty, top twenty five, come from? Um, is is it shows, or is it is radio relevant anymore? Yeah, to a degree. We had a lot of support from Six Music, which was really really helpful for us. We had three singles on the playlist. Um, I think the people that listen to Six Music are definitely still a record buying public, um, and I think they're a lot more invested in the bands they play. I think um, we had a we had a really good amount of press, but that's because the album was amazing. And the press, the press that I saw, because I I think was probably in the kind of the sort of you know the newspapers and yeah, things. We yeah, we had support from the Guardian and the Telegraph. But yeah, at the end of the day, the reason why the record did so well is because it was incredible. It is a brilliant. Yes, record. but I mean, I, but but um, but you, I, 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 of course yeah, I accept uh, that. Yeah. But I mean, the challenge with any great business is to find enough customers to make that business yeah, sustainable. Yeah. And, and so it, it's still, it's st- it, well, I suppose my, the answer that you've given is, is that it's still quite traditional. You need a bit of radio, you know, there's obviously the internet, but you also need to make a great video, presumably. Yeah, yeah but there's also, 
word of mouth is always going to be yeah. a huge factor. If and live play, shows. You, are... A live show is, yeah, if you play a brilliant live show, if one person comes, the next time you'll have five people because they'll tell four friends that this is amazing. And when you play to a crowd of 300, the next time you're playing to 800, 1500. And then that's when the momentum starts to really pick up. And that's when also the bands start to get paid for playing live. Yes. Which is, which is a difficult point to get to because yes. <laughs> it, it, touring is expensive. And when you start out, the fees are very small. You what sort of venues are Goat Girl playing now? So the next London show is Coco. Which is, which is 2000 or something, isn't it? It's 1500. 1500. Yeah. That's amazing. But their last show was 800 and the show before that, 200 in London. So it's just picking up and picking up. And will you sell out Coco, do you think? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. That's very, very impressive. Very on that. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and, and, and are you working with them on, on um, I mean, they've obviously made some great videos, I assume. Go yeah. Are you also working with them? Is merchandise a big aspect of your business? Because it was huge for my band. We were selling, yeah. bear in mind this is 25 years ago, in Britain we were selling, I think, just under 200,000 quid's worth of T-shirts a year at 10 quid. It's amazing. They're not there yet. That was the last they T-shirt, are... but that was a yeah. T-shirt moment. I don't, I don't think band T-shirts are as big now, but there are other merch. They're still, I mean, to, the way I see it is that a lot, merch, I suppose, then was T-shirts and badges and records were records and CDs were CDs, whatever it was. I think at the moment now, everything is a form of merch in a way. I think, I mean, I, I, run, a, I run a record label which puts out seven-inch singles. And sometimes I do wonder if anyone's actually playing them or if they're buying them because they want to hold a piece of, a tangible piece of the band in a way that they know they're supporting at the same time. I think the way that merch has changed is quite interesting. The Go Girl do sell a lot of merch when they tour. They've just come back from a US tour where they did a healthy amount. Of t-shirts mainly, but yeah. And you sell you sell actual um, CDs and vinyl at gigs, do yeah. you? Yeah, because that because that was something that was generally resisted in the old days because it wouldn't count towards it's a chart, chart sale. Eligible, yeah, yeah. But now at every gig I go to, I see people, particularly vinyl consuming vinyl. Maybe yeah. that's an age profile thing. I don't know, but um, yeah, no. I mean, I think uh, as we, we 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 talked about this earlier, but maybe chart positions aren't quite what they used to be. It's not. It's not the complete be-all and end-all. It's very, very nice to have a charting record, but it doesn't mean success. This is not a loaded question at all, but who, who pays attention to the charts now? What sort of person does? <laughs> no, I mean, I, yeah. because when I was growing up, that for me as a fan was massively important. Yeah. I and mean, when I was then in the industry, it was massively important. But I now, personally, I don't know what's in the charts at all. And so I'm, I'm intrigued, because they were a big thing. I mean, they were... a. That was a big centre of British culture, the charts. Yeah. Uh, 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 I mean, who, who now would know? I still think music fans are interested to see, interested to gauge how popular artists they follow are. I mean, for me, I, I, I grew up reading the Guinness Record Book of Charts. Guinness was, Book of Hit Singles? Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I loved it. them. I got one every year Same Christmas, here. And it was brilliant. And I memorised chart positions. I can still tell you that... Uh, the Sultan's a pig only ever had one top 40 hit. But, um, Where's your jumper? Yeah, go yeah. on. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But um, I think the way that streaming works, singles charts are completely different. You can have, I suppose, one of the biggest songs of the year was a song called Feel It Still by a band called Portugal The Man. And that song came out maybe five months before it entered the chart. And then it climbed gradually due to streaming to number one. So that, that clearly means something. Yeah, so instead of having like your first week sales going straight in, people don't buy singles anymore, everyone streams. So it's a different way of 
accumulating chart positions, and I suppose that makes the charts a bit less exciting. When Ed Sheeran's got 18 tracks in the top 20 because his album's just come out, that really, for me, devalues the fun of having a chart. But they've changed the chart to... Yeah, they have, yeah. They? I mean, but I think it's still... You can, st you can still see artists keeping onto the top, the top spot. Like, Drake had the top spot for, I can't remember how many weeks, but that would have been when Kylie Minogue had a number one single for 16 weeks or whatever it was. That was massive because every single week she was selling physical singles every single week. Yes. Whereas now it's slightly different. I feel like the excitement's slightly gone from it. Yes, I, I, I would agree. I mean, I, I, but I, I'm just intrigued. You know, the, of course, the industry needs the charts yeah. anyway as a mechanism. We all need validation. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. So um, Goat Girl, so let's just kind of finish on Goat Girl. What, what's, what's going on there? So you've got the record out, that's doing well. You're obviously doing some substantial shows. You're touring America. What's the sort of trajectory there? Because you presumably got to get another record recorded. Yeah, I mean they're they're going out to Japan next week for a couple of shows, which is really exciting for them. They haven't been to Japan yet. I think Japanese music fans will absolutely love them, which is going to be brilliant. Uh, they're doing a UK tour. They're doing a load of festivals, and then after that, they're going to start writing their next record. They've probably got a lot of it written already. And have you entered that um, that album for the Mercury Prize? We're really hoping. It will get a nomination. Get it, okay, but you, um, you have to enter it, presumably, do you, and pay a fee or something? I don't, uh, I'm, not sure that, I'm not sure. No, I, I don't know. I assumed it was, you know, it was, it was like that. But I mean, that, that's good because it would strike me that's the sort of record that could, could yeah, get a nomination. Yeah, and it really deserves a nomination. Yeah, so it's, we, I, I love that prize. Yeah, I mean, me I could, too, yeah. You know, and they, they consistently, they get slagged off by certain sort of chin strokers, but they consistently deliver a list with really interesting records on it, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, well, fingers crossed. <laughs> that shortlist is in a month or so, I guess. Yeah, it is, yeah, it's yeah. really soon. Okay, well, so. I don't want to get you anxious about that. <laughs> Charlie, thanks so much. That's been absolutely brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Charlie. Um, I, I feel quite sort of nostalgic and, and melancholy uh, watching him uh, do his job. I think he's doing amazing things and it's clearly going to go well. Anyway, that's my take on it. I thought that I should probably play you a little bit of Kingmaker. I bet you've never heard any Kingmaker. Anyway, so I looked on Spotify and Kingmaker's most listened to song is 10 Years Asleep. Actually, that's had nearly 130,000 listens. Maybe I should have made a few pence from Spotify, I wonder. Um, but here it is, 10 Years Asleep, which was actually quite a big hit in the UK. I think this might have been the record that was briefly, for one week, the most played record on Radio 1. How amazing, how things change. It was a long time ago. Thanks for listening. Here's Kingmaker and 10 Years of Sleep. Bye. It wouldn't happen in another world. It couldn't have happened to a nicer planet. It would have happened in another world. So don't pretend to care when you don't care. With all of us Breakfast television Is the biggest decision I've made In the last decade It would happen in another world It couldn't have happened to a nicer planet It would happen in another world Just don't pretend to care when you don't care 
Don't care. 